Ever since he has mentioned the final destination, there's a palpable tension within the group. They just can't believe that he's going there. See, it's the third time that Jesus has told his disciples how the story is going to end and where he is going to go. Three times he has told his disciples, his inner circle, that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to enter into the lion's den, the very place where there's a price on his head, where there are people who are gathering together thinking of ways to trap and to kill Jesus. But to his disciples, he tells them, yes, there will come a time in which we go straight into Jerusalem. I will hand myself over to the Roman authorities, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And there they will beat me, they will mock me, they will torture me, and they will kill me. But after three days, I will pull off Easter. They have known this. And day after day, week after week, they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. The tension is rising. It's been on their thoughts for weeks. And just before entering into Jerusalem, Jesus makes one final stop to a place called Jericho. And there, a Pharisee comes up to Jesus to try to trap him with a question. And Jesus can see his heart. He sees the ego He sees the self-righteousness, and so Jesus chooses to answer his question with a story, a parable that will amaze not only him, but the entire crowd that's listening in. And so, Gateway, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 18. And I know that many of you are thinking, wait, we're in a Roman series. I already have my Bible open to Romans chapter 2. That's great. Keep your tab there and start turning to the left and go to Luke chapter 18 as well. I want you to see that both what Paul is going to share with us today and this parable of Jesus are birds of a feather. Like peas and carrots, these stories go together. But I want you to see with your own eyes the message that Paul is going to allow you to hear with your own ears. And so, Join me, Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9. This is what Jesus says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, again, he's talking to this Pharisee, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Now stop right there. Jesus is setting the stage for a juicy story. You think about the people who are around him at this time. You have the Pharisee, like I mentioned already, but then you have all the common folk, all the people that Jesus chooses to associate with on a regular basis, sinners. And in this story, Jesus means to compare and to contrast the two. The first being a Pharisee, and I know oftentimes they get a bad report and we we talk about how their hearts were far from God, but Pharisees spent two decades, literally 20 plus years, memorizing the Torah, memorizing scripture so that they could live it out and serve as an example to the community. Everyone was supposed to aspire to be more like a Pharisee. And then on the other side, there's a, a tax collector And the interesting thing about tax collectors that we need to know is that they were kind of the the scum of society. They were Jews, but they were despised. Why? 
Because back then, the way that the Roman authorities collected their taxes is they would get a bunch of tax collectors together, and then they would ask them, how much money can we collect in taxes from that region? And all the tax collectors, they would bid on these regions based on what they know, who's living there, how wealthy or unwealthy they are. So let's just say, use some arbitrary number for a moment. They said, in this particular region, in the Fraser Valley, I can uh, bring in $10,000 in taxes. Now here's the kicker. If they raised more than that, all of that went to them. The only thing the Roman authorities cared about was that $10,000. So whether they raised eleven or forty. All the rest went to them. And so these Jews, who were tax collectors, were despised by their own brothers, their own sisters, their own family, their own friends. Because it's not taxes like we think of it today, it's extortion. And people hated them for it. And so on this day, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they, they go to church together. And here's what happens. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like those other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is not, what the, not the story that people expected. You have these Pharisees, and sure, they're going to church. That's to be expected. They're praying to God, thank you for everything that I have done. Thank you for my moral pedigree. Thank you for all the, the good deeds I've been able to commit. Like, could you imagine yourself going to church or going to your life group and praying aloud? God, thank you for making me me. Thank you that I'm so superior to all these other people. And yet he's right, isn't he? To some degree he is. That he is morally upstanding. He's far more righteous and moral than all the other people around him. Especially this despised and despicable tax collector. But the tax collector won't even look up to heaven. He is so ashamed of all the things that he has done. And so the only words that he can utter out of his mouth are... Be merciful to me, a sinner. But then comes the kicker, the twist to the story. Jesus says this in verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And suddenly the silence of the crowd is met with astonishment. <gasps> A collective gasp. How can it be that the tax collector is justified, but the Pharisee isn't? The tax collector is in, but the Pharisee is out. How could that possibly be? And not only the Pharisee who's there asking Jesus the question, but everyone all around him, they're astonished at this story. And they begin thinking to themselves, there's something wrong with this story. No, 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 no. There's something wrong with this storyteller. And only days later, Jesus is put to death. 
But in this story, we are going to learn about the heart of the gospel and the heart of God and the heart of the Apostle Paul that he wants us to understand. With this question that the people are asking, ultimately the question is this, how can it be that the Pharisees can't get in on their own merit? And if they can't get in on their own merit, who can? That's the question. Who can make it to heaven if they can't? The best of the best in our society. What do we do from here? And this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to walk us through it. So, here's the first point that I want you to see on the front end. The moral of the story of what we're going to learn today is this. God doesn't grade on a curve. Scripture from the very beginning says, be holy because I am holy. Scripture does not say that we need to be the top 20% echelon of moral people. And in so doing, we will be accepted by God. We all know that we all sin. We all fall short. We all make mistakes, but the objective in this life is for you to be just a little bit better than everyone else. Never in Scripture is that even noted or even insinuated in any way at all. The only thing that we see repeatedly in Scripture is that there is one measurement, there's one judgment, and it is Scripture. And if you have the eyes to see, if you look at what Scripture says, what all of us we'll have to come to terms with, is that we have fallen dangerously short of the standard of God. Every single one of us. So we cannot justify ourselves in comparison to our peers. We can only compare ourselves to the word of God, which condemns us. So Jesus says, listen, the Father doesn't grade on a curve. It's not as though you can look around and say, wow, I'm doing so much better than everyone else, like that Pharisee. I'm doing so much better than the adulterers and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the pimps and all those people who do terrible, atrocious things. Thank you, God, that I'm so much morally superior to them. It does not work. Instead, we can only compare ourselves to God's word. And if we do that, we can only have the same heart as that tax collector who says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Here's the second note that we have to see. Your only hope is for God's mercy. Your only hope is for God's mercy. Um, if you want to take a look at this later, you can go to Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 to 17. And there, we're told that at the end of time, this great and glorious city will be revealed, in which there will no longer be need for the sun, because the glory and the radiance of God is what will fill the earth. That's how beautiful it will be. But then Jesus says this. He says, excluded from the city will be murderers, all those who practice magic in the occult, fornicators, and heretics. They'll all be excluded. It's a remarkably similar list to what we read two weeks ago in Romans chapter 1. And what this Pharisee has just mentioned in the book of Luke. All these kinds of people. And so then the question that we have to ask ourselves is, if those are the types of people who don't get in, what are the types of people who do? How do you get in to heaven with glory, with God, into the new kingdom? How can you do that? Well, you might say it stands to reason if those are the type of people who get out, murderers and fornicators and, and people like that, then the type of people who get in must be the morally righteous. People who make better choices. 
people who are upright, like the Pharisees. But Jesus says the answer to that is no. He says in Revelation 22, verse 17, here's the answer. Anyone who thirsts, come and take water of life and drink it freely. And so according to Jesus, it's not the moral, but the thirsty who enter into the kingdom of God. What's the difference between a moral person and a thirsty person? A moral person is someone who stands before God and he says, you owe me. I deserve this credit. I deserve your glory. I deserve everything that you are, intend to grant to your people because I'm so far superior to everyone else. So always, in our hearts, a moral person comes before God with that expectation that you owe me. But see, a thirsty person comes before God and simply recognizes that there's nothing that they can do in and of themselves. There's nothing that they can give. There's nothing that they can barter with. Nothing they can negotiate with. And so at the end, they come with open hands. And they say, Lord, there's nothing that I can give you. There's nothing that I can earn. Be merciful to me. Please give me a drink. And Jesus says, it's the thirsty, not the moral, who enter into the kingdom of God. He says that in Revelation 22. He says it in Luke. And we're also going to see it this morning in Romans chapter 2. And so here's the third and final thing I want you to see that frames the moral of the story. The standard that we have to recognize is this. You have to see that you can't live up to the standard. That's the standard. You have to see that there's nothing that you can do in and of yourself to earn your own salvation. And so as Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, these words from this parable are ringing in their ears. And I wonder if the Apostle Paul is thinking about that story when he's writing Romans chapter 2. Remember, who's Paul? Formerly Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, perfect. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, given the name Saul, which is the same name as the most notable person to ever come out of the tribe of Benjamin, the first king of Israel, Saul. He is a morally upstanding person. And he's the kind of guy who drank the Kool-Aid of the Pharisees. Who said the only way that we can earn salvation is if we strive to be more moral and upright than other people around us. That is the only way. Until God encountered him on the road. And he reoriented his life. And now Paul doesn't want any other man, woman, or child to go down the same path that he was going down. He wants us to see in our heart, not just in our head, but truly in our heart, that the only thing that can truly save us is the sacrifice of Jesus. So Paul writes an entire chapter that's devoted to bringing this entire point home. I wanted you to see it with your eyes, not just to hear it with your ears. And maybe, just maybe this morning, uh, you're coming to this service, you're hoping that what you hear in this message is, is going to uplift you, right? You just need that source of encouragement. Well, I, I hate to disappoint, but this is going to be a really tough word for us to hear this morning. But my hope is, if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, 
this bad news, it will make the good news that is coming in chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and on so much more sweet, infinitely sweeter. It's not until we come to terms with the bad news are we able to fully embrace the good news that is coming. And so Paul wants to lay that foundation. Like a good surgeon, he wants to prepare you for the surgery. He wants to prepare you for the really difficult circumstances that we all face. And so with that, I want to encourage you, if you already have it there, turn with me to Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 1. This is where we started last week. Verse 1 says this, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on the truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? And so the point that he's making in the first three verses is this. When we're harsh and judgmental, we toss aside the gift of God. We toss aside the gift of God. Paul says, do you really think that you can judge others but then you yourself will escape the judgment of God at the end day? Do you think that you can ultimately do that? See, the person who compares themselves to others is in far worse a position than the tax collector who's beating his chest. Why? Why is the moral person who is self-justifying in a worse position than an immoral person who is needy? Because at least with the tax collector, he knew that he needed the grace of God. He knew that he needed the mercy of God. But maybe for you, you're convinced that you don't. And that's the challenge. His heart was humbled to the core. But when moral superiority begins to creep into our hearts, we begin to convince ourselves that we don't actually need the very grace that Jesus came to give. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. And then he continues in verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. <coughs> so here's the point. All of us stand guilty before God. We can't confuse God's patience with his approval. Let's get really practical about this for a moment. Let's suppose that in your own life right now, uh, things are going really well. You have a really good retirement account, a lot of money in the bank. You have a really good family structure. Things are going well with your spouse and with your kids. You uh, enjoy your career. And so from, from the outset, everything in your life is going really, really well. And because of that, you might even be convinced that, that God is blessing your life. I'm blessed, right? I got health, wealth, and happiness. Everything is going really well in my life. This has to do with God's blessing that he is pouring out upon me. Meanwhile, if you can picture this, maybe, just maybe, at exactly the same moment, Jesus is holding out his hands against the, the Hoover Dam of God's righteous judgment against you. And so do not mistake 
the things that are going well in your life. God's patience with his approval. Do not mistake those things. Having quality of life doesn't necessarily mean that we have a quality of relationship with God. Ultimately, what God is after is the renewal of our heart. A willingness to love him and to serve him and to see that he is our only method of salvation. Full stop. And then he continues in verse 6. He says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. What an incredible verse. Like, you'd have to be pretty bold to say, God, bring it. I know what I've done and I've earned my way. Verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good and seeking glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. We'll come back to that one in just a second. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not only those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So Paul here, he's uh, in verse 6 and 7, he's guilty of a little bit of dry humor that I think we, most of us, just missed. I absolutely love what um, the Apostle Peter says about Paul. This is just a side point, but I, I think it's so humorous. You see the difference between these two men, Paul being like Ivy League school educated and Peter being, you know, just a humble fisherman. And he says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. He writes this way in all of his letters, speaking in them about such matters, but some parts of his letters are hard to understand. <laughs> I just love that. He's like, he's a brain on a stick, right? He's a super, super knowledgeable guy. Sometimes it's hard to understand what he is saying. So Paul just infused a little bit of humor into his message, and so here's ultimately what he is saying. He's saying, for all of you, who are perfectly righteous before God, just like in verses 6 and 7. For all of you who are totally right and have never made a mistake, God will give you eternal life on the basis of yourself, not even on the basis of Jesus. But then comes the question, where are all my perfect people at? Perfect people, show of hands, where are y'all at? Show me where you are. Come on down, receive your prize. You're going to heaven on the basis of your own merit, your own moral pedigree, your own righteousness. Come on down. It describes none of us. Absolutely none of us. So what Paul means to do here is to show us that there's only two ways to God. The first way is for you to prove your 100% total righteousness before God that you have never failed at any point. And the second is 100% the sacrifice of Jesus. And there is no in-between. But at some point, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they convinced themselves that it was a little bit of both. That's a little bit the sacrifice of God, but it's also a little bit the sacrifice of me. And if I can be moral enough and good enough, then I can earn my own keep. I can earn my own way. Paul says, not so. Not so. And so then he continues 
in verses 6 to 13, he says this, don't fall for the lie that good people go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Perfect people do. Perfect people do. And so verses 6 to 13 describes no one. But Paul addresses it because he knows the pattern of our own hearts. He knows our sin nature. He knows the temptation that every single one of us has to compare ourselves not to Scripture, but to everyone else around us. And when we do that, we gain a little bit of moral superiority. We say, at least I'm not like that person. I'm not Adolf Hitler. I'm not Bernie Madoff. You know, I'm not some drug lord. I'm not a murderer. I didn't do those kinds of bad things. Surely God will accept me because I haven't done things like that. But Paul wants to very lovingly and graciously pin us up against a wall and say, it's not good people who enter into heaven. It's only perfect people. And if you're not a perfect person, then this is incredibly bad news. Such bad news. Then he says this in verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written upon their hearts. Their consciences are also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accuse them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secret thoughts through Jesus Christ as my, my gospel declares. So Paul says, um, it doesn't matter if you say to yourself, you know, oh, Christianity, it might be good for some people, but it's just, it's not good for me. You know, it's really good that you have found your own truth, right? Your own truth just for you that Jesus Christ has saved you from your sins. But I have, I have found my own unique spirituality. I'm on my own journey for truth. And I have found something that just meets my needs. And that's good for me. So can't we just coexist? Right? Can't you have your truth and I have my truth? Paul says no. Very graciously, no. Because there's only one way to salvation. There's only one path back to God to being redeemed once more. And it's through Jesus. It's the only way. And so the note that he makes here in verses 14 to 16 is this. Truth isn't relative. Don't dismiss the moral code that we're all born with. Do not dismiss the moral code that we're all born with. This is actually the second time in this book that Paul has mentioned this. If you look back at Romans chapter 1, 18 to 20, he said this already. Let me read it for you. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. How? Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Why? So that people are without excuse. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, there is a God, and you see him in everything that he has made. You see him in creation, all around you. You see his eternal power, his divine nature, all on shining display. 
Let me give you an example of this. Think, for example, of um, the house that you live in. My guess is that maybe 5% of you actually know who built your house, right? But the majority of us don't. Like Julie and I, we, we live just up the hill in Mission, and we know that the house was built in 1994, but I have no clue who built it. I don't know. I think that's probably the majority of us, whether you own or rent, uh, you probably don't know the people who constructed your home. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever doubted for a single moment that someone built your house? Of course not. You see the intelligent design, don't you? You see the house that you've been made. Whether you live in the Taj Mahal or you live in something uh, a little bit less expensive, you look at your house and you say, quality craftsmanship resulted in the building of this home. But again, on the other side, it's just a house, isn't it? Some concrete, some electrical, some, some wood, some vinyl, some paint. And that's your house. But you know definitively in your bones that someone has constructed that home. And yet, here's the question. Could we assume for a moment that it is perfectly logical, perfectly reasonable to assume that someone built your house even though you don't know who built it? But at the same time, it's also perfectly reasonable to surmise that the creation in its vast array and its infinite complexity was made by chance. How could that possibly be? You think of the sun and the moon and the stars, the trillions upon trillions of stars in the sky. You think about the fact that this little blue ball that we call Earth orbiting around the sun, if it was one degree closer to the sun, we'd all burn to death. If it was one degree farther away from the sun, we'd all freeze to death. Or about how the fact that the perfect combination of nitrogen and oxygen and other chemicals uh, allow us to sustain life so that we can live and animals and plants and trees and birds of the air. We can all live and there's a, a perfect ecosystem that we live within. And we say all of that can be made by chance, but you know definitively that someone built your house. Or you think, for instance, of this stool. It's just a stool, right? Some quality craftsmanship went into it. But what if I tried to convince you that this wasn't built after people cut it up and brought it to a lumber yard and then it went to a craftsman and he or she built this stool so that I can be sitting on it today, but that ultimately what actually happened was it was sitting in the forest one day, it blew up, and then all those tiny little pieces of wood flew together and not only that but glue and Everything else that goes into this, you can tell that I'm not a master builder. All those things came together so that it could be made. But no one actually made it. It all happened by chance. We'd say absolutely not. We see the quality craftsmanship. We see the intelligent design. And it's just a stool. It's just a stool. So Paul is saying, when you're looking at the complexity of the universe, the world that we live in, we see the intelligent design, and therefore there must be an intelligent designer. So two points that Paul wants to make note of. The first one is that is the intelligent design of the creation. And the second proof is that we all have a moral code that we are built with. So that's the second way he pins us up against the wall. He says, well he doesn't say this, but in, in a manner of speaking, there's never been a person in the entire world who would agree with the statement that it is okay for adult people to gratuitously 
abuse a child. We'd say, no, that's wrong. It's morally wrong. On what basis is it wrong? Well, I just know it. You say, of course we know that. But how do we know? If the world was just randomly made and it all blew up together and we're just here and we're nothing more than chemicals in our brain flooding around causing us to want to do something. The dopamine that fills us causes us to want to do this and not to do that. Or is there something more? We have a conscience that tells us this is morally right, this is morally wrong. It leads to a creator, an intelligent creator who has made us. It brings us to God. And so here's what Paul is doing. He's pinning a lot of different people to the wall. The first He's pinning moralists to the wall. All of us people who say, you know what, what you really need to do to get to God, to get to the new kingdom, to get to heaven, is that you have to be morally superior to others. Paul says, no. But also, the second group of people that he pins to the wall are religious and moral relativists who say it doesn't really matter in the end anyway. He says it absolutely does. And what he's trying to do is to very graciously lead us to the problem. Here's, here's a way that I, I would love for you to picture this in, in your mind. Imagine if, and, and actually some of you have experienced this before, and I, I don't want to make this trivial or trite, but you have sat down with a doctor, or your loved one has, or maybe a, a family member or a friend, and a doctor has said to them or to you, you have cancer. And as the cancer grows, it's going to take your life. You have weeks or maybe even months to live. And in that moment, what the doctor is trying to do, especially if there is a cure, is to not only convince you of the problem, but to help you come to terms with the problem so that you can be receptive to the solution. Because if you are in denial and you say, no, I don't have cancer, I just know in my bones that I don't. You're wrong. I know you saw MRIs and x-rays and all that kind of stuff, but you're wrong. I choose not to accept it. The cancer will continue to grow and it will take your life. But what the doctor wants you to do is to realize the seriousness with which your life is on the line. And as you come to terms with that, there will be a receptivity to the cure. So that's what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 2. He wants you to come to terms with the problem, the cancer of the heart that each and every one of us has, that you can't save yourself. Also, you can't just pretend that it's not there and just say, you know what, truth is relative. I'm not dealing with it. I'm moving on with my life. It's there, Paul says. I want you to see it. I don't want you to go down the wrong path of being someone who's morally superior or someone who just says it doesn't exist and goes on their merry way. I want you to see it, that there's only one cure. And that's the good news. The good news that he's going to say in Romans chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 is that there's good news. There's a cure. There's a master surgeon who can take out the cancer of the heart so that you can be set free. And so right now we're just in chapter 2. Just chapter 2. Where we are finally going to come to terms not only with the problem. But the solution that we find in Jesus. And so here's my encouragement for you today. I encourage you before life gets busy and, and you move on with your day today. 
to take a moment and to consider the seriousness with which God condemns our sin, the cancer of the heart that we all have. Because if we put in the good, hard work of recognizing our frailty and our need for a Savior, it will make the work of Jesus infinitely sweeter. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus that Paul is going to lead us to in the coming weeks. But today, we ask that you would pierce our hearts. Allow us to come to terms with the seriousness of our sin and our brokenness and your hatred with it. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us a new heart, that we would be like that tax collector, willing to keep our head down and to beat our breast and to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have nothing to my name, nothing that I can give you, nothing that I can contribute. Lord, be merciful to me by the power of your son, Jesus. Help us as a church, for everyone who's listening today, to be marked as people of humility. By the power of your spirit, Lord, make us humble. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.